Um, so I'm going to be reading from Romans uh, chapter 6, uh, 1 to 4, and then I'm going to um, jump over to 15 to 18 and can be found in the Church Bibles on 1182, 1082. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We die to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into, into death in order that just as Christ was rised, raised from the dead uh, through the glory of our Father, we too may live a new life. And then to 15. What then... Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to somebody, someone, uh, to, to obey him as a slave, you're a slave to the one whom you obey. Whether you are a slave to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that um, though you used to be a slave to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. All right, so we're going to be reading from Ephesians 2, um, 1 to 10. So it's on page 1225 in the Visitor's Bibles. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. What is this thing called grace? Words can mean a lot of things in our language, can't they? And the word grace can mean different things at different times. Sometimes we'll say that a woman is graceful. She walks gracefully. For those who are old enough or who like old movies, I'm told that Audrey Hepburn is the classic example of gracefulness. On the other hand, in our house, we say grace before meals. On the other hand, your name would be grace. But what does it mean in the Bible? 
I want you to turn to begin with tonight to Psalm 103 in the middle of the Bible, page 632. What does the Bible mean when it talks about grace? Well, Psalm 103, in verse 8, it says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious slow to anger, abounding in love. So let's give our three meanings a whirl. The Lord is compassionate and graceful. He walks like Audrey Hepburn. No. The Lord is compassionate and says thanks before meals. No. The Lord's name is grace. Clearly, these are all wrong, aren't they? What does it mean then in the Bible when it says that the Lord is gracious? What does it mean, this word grace? Well, verse 8 makes it pretty clear because the Hebrews were pretty good at making a word really clear in poetry. They would say the same meaning over and over again. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. The Lord is kind and generous and is slow to react to those things that make him angry. He is abounding in love towards his creatures. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbour his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. The Lord is gracious. It is a character attribute of God. And it is a generosity towards those who don't deserve it. At its heart, the word uh, grace means favour, a positive attitude to something. You can have grace towards Pizza Hut. If you happen to like pizzas and, in your insanity, think that Pizza Hut make really good pizzas, they have won your favour, do you see? And you are grace gracious towards them. You are positive in your favour towards them. They have won your favour. Do you see? But this is a favour, a positive attitude that is not won, that is not earned. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquity. In verse 11 and 12, he forgives sin. Here is a favour, a positive attitude, a generosity that we don't deserve. That's grace. But once you understand what grace is, how could you possibly think that grace is an idea that changed the world? For it seems to me that this idea, grace, that God is gracious, is an idea that everyone believes in. Do you think it's good to be generous? 
even when people don't deserve it? Do you parents try and teach your children that it's good to share their toys with other children even if they won't share? Of course you do. We think it's good to be generous. Do we think that God is generous and forgiving? Yes. As some wit once says, uh, uh, said, of course God will forgive me, that's his job. Everyone is sure that God is generous. He'll forgive you even if you don't ask him. He'll forgive you even if you don't change. He'll forgive you even if you don't want him to forgive you. He's just like that. And it's not just our society that thinks that. Almost every religion in the world thinks that God is gracious. Islam. I tried reading the Quran once. Have you ever tried? A good thing to try. It's hard to do, for it's not arranged in a chronological story. It's not arranged in themes. They simply put it in chapters, and they put the longest chapter first and the shortest chapter last. I would have done it the other way around, if you want people to read. How does every chapter start? The same line every time. In the name of God the merciful, the compassionate. Muslims believe that God is gracious and the Catholic Church of the 16th century was thoroughly convinced and is thoroughly convinced that God is gracious. So how can grace be an idea that changed the world? Imagine I said to you that I've got an idea an idea that is going to change the world, that will enable human beings in different cultures across the centuries, across the world, to communicate with one another. They will understand one another, will prevent wars, will prosper the, the endeavours of science, will communicate, it'll be marvellous, it'll change the world. You say, Sean, it sounds terrific. What is this idea that you've come up with that's going to change the world? And I say, I'm going to call it writing. What a great idea. And what would you say to me? Sean, we've already got that one. That's what grace is like isn't it? Everyone believes in it and everyone thinks it's a good idea. How can grace be an idea that changed the world? It's not. Not grace, but grace alone. Governor Macquarie, when he came to New South Wales, championed a fair go, a fair go for convicts who had reformed. And so when Andrew Thompson came to the colony as a convicted thief, but soon showed himself that he had reformed, he was pardoned. And once he was pardoned, he became a landowner here at Green Hills, now called Windsor. He set up the local store. He was appointed as the local magistrate. When the terrible floods came through Windsor, he rescued people from death. But a short while later, he died. And Governor Macquarie came out to Windsor, 
came out to the town square and to celebrate this fair go, he named the square Thompson Square. For those who want to save the square, beautiful as it is, who want to save the bridge, beautiful as it is, this is a great story. For Windsor, Thompson Square is the birthplace of the Australian idea of a fair go. Even the worst person can redeem themselves by becoming good. Do we believe that? We do. And what we want to do is believe in grace and a fair go. Look, Hindus have got it down pat. They call it karma. You do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad. And if the equation doesn't work out in this life, don't worry, it will in the others. In Islam, they believe in grace and a fair go. The Lord is compassionate, merciful and compassionate, Allah, but you must also do good. So I asked my Muslim barber once, can you have confidence of eternal life? No way, he said, for it depends on your works. It's like a wage, he says to me. You have to earn it. And the Catholic Church of the 16th century said pretty much the same thing. God is gracious. He is full of grace. But you only get his grace if you do good. The Bible talks about grace as an attitude, a favourable attitude that you don't deserve. It's a characteristic of God. But the Catholic Church had, had changed that so that they thought of grace as a substance, a fluid that came down from God that you needed to get more and more of. It was a bit like milk in our household. You go out and buy 12 litres of milk and put it in the fridge and a few days later you need to buy another 12 litres of milk. It's a substance that needs to keep on flowing. That was grace in the Catholic Church. And God had appointed not many sellers of this substance but one exclusive distributor on earth the Catholic Church. You could get some grace by buying an indulgence, but more commonly, you could get some more grace by doing one of the rituals, one of the sacraments. What were they? Baptism, confirmation, mass, penance, ordination, marriage, and the anointing of the sick, which we often call the last rites. Do these things and you'll get another packet, another delivery of grace. So, for example, each week you would go and confess your sins. You confessed them to the Father, the priest. He would pronounce you forgiven for your eternal punishment had been paid. But remember, there was still the temporal, in time punishment to be paid. And so you needed to do the penance, say some prayers, say the Lord's Prayer as if that would earn you something. And as you did that, you would get another packet of grace. And if you got enough, you'd be fit for heaven. Not enough in this life, you're worried? There's purgatory, the great blessing that you can get more then. It's all grace, do you see? 
all from God, but you must earn it. Like people say, God helps those who help themselves. Do you see grace and a fair go? You can see it really clearly on the sermon outline there. They tell you this is exactly what they think. We can merit for ourselves and for others the graces needed for the attainment of eternal life. We can merit a fair go for ourselves and others the graces needed for eternal life. Have they given up on this idea? No, that was written in 1994. Grace plus a fair go. Well, what could be wrong with that? It's a perfect marriage, isn't it? It's the two things we want to believe, grace and a fair go. God's generosity and God rewards it when you try and redeem yourself. Why would you object to that? Why create a fuss? Well, Luther and Calvin realised it's not what the Bible says. Let's have a look at that second Bible reading, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, it's page 1225. This is a great passage. There is heaps here. I'm going to simply ask two simple questions. Who saved us and why? Who Verse 1, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Human beings think we can do anything, don't we? We thought we could put a man on the moon, and we did. We think now we can put a man on Mars. But there's one thing we can't do, according to this passage. We can't choose God. We follow the world, we follow the flesh, we follow the devil, and we follow them so thoroughly that spiritually we are dead and so unable to choose God. You remember Lazarus in the Bible, a friend of Jesus? Sick, dead. Dead for several days. And then Jesus raised him. Imagine imagine Lazarus that night having just been raised. There he is down at the pub, having a quiet one, when his mate comes in, feeling a little down in the dumps, having heard that Lazarus was dead. He sees him. Lazarus, my mate. I thought you were dead. I was, said Lazarus. Well, that's extraordinary. I didn't think that sort of thing could happen, coming alive again. Lazarus, says his friend, how did you do it? 
Well, Lazarus looks at his mate as if he's just realised how stupid his mate really is. He'd never realised. That was the dumbest question he'd ever heard. How did Lazarus do it? The answer is, and Lazarus said, I didn't. Dead people don't raise themselves. And that's what it says here. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. This simple question, who saved us? The answer cannot be us. A fair go is not going to help us at this point, is it? You were dead in your transgressions and sins. The who cannot be us. Who is it then? Verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. The answer is God. God made us alive. Do you see the verbs keep flowing here? Made us alive, verse 5. Verse 6, raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. There are three main verbs and they are massive. And who does every one of them? God. God made us alive. God raised us up. God seated us in the heavenly realms. And at no point at all... Do we do anything, do you see? Every step of the way, it all is done by God. There is grace here and no sign at all of a fair go. Any thought you might have of God raised us up and then it was time for us to have our turn is completely out the window. People say God helps those who help themselves That's a lie, isn't it? Dead people can't help themselves. God helps those who can't help themselves. Who saved us? God. What was the second question? Why? Why did God save us? When a wedding couple comes to see me and they're keen to arrange their wedding, I figure it's polite and uh, sort of interesting to find out how it was that they met and how it was that they now think that this person is worth marrying. I look at the guy and think, he doesn't seem that impressive to me, I wouldn't marry him, and, you know, whatever. So I ask them, what was it about you, What sorry, what was it about them that really attracted you to them? Maybe at first, and then it developed. And they've always got an answer. You'll be pleased to know. It'd be embarrassing if they didn't, wouldn't it? They've got an answer, but essentially they say, because he's worth it. You know, like the hair shampoo commercial or whatever it is. Because she's worth it. Well, imagine for a moment that it's God and his people who've come to see me. And so I say to his people, what was it about God that really attracted you to him? What was it that made you think I really must choose God? He's the one for me. Well, his people should look back at me as if I'm the most stupid person they've ever met, as stupid as Lazarus's mate. I didn't, they would say, 
I was dead. A little embarrassed, presumably, I then turned to God. Okay, uh, God, what was it about these people that really made you think that they were worth it, that they were the ones? Hoping that God will have something to say. And what would he say? Nothing. Actually, there was nothing God would say. Have a look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. They were following the ways of the world, the flesh and the devil. They rejected me. They hated me. They were the objects of my wrath. Why then, God, I would say, and it says in verse 4, doesn't it? Because of his great love, God who is rich in mercy. It is grace here. It's clear here, isn't it, that it's not that God helps those who help themselves. It is not grace plus a fair go. And it is God helps those who are not worth helping. It's undeserved grace. It can't be grace plus a fair go. It can't be grace that you earn because that is not grace at all. It has to be grace alone. And when it's grace alone, that is amazing grace, isn't it? That saved a wretch like me. We sing Ephesians 2 every time we sing that song. And if that logic wasn't enough for you, that it must be grace alone, then I think verse 8 and 9 makes it pretty clear. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. No, Paul didn't think to put the word alone in. He was writing before the Reformation, but he said the word alone five times in those two verses, I reckon. By grace you've been saved, not from yourselves, gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It is not grace that changed the world, but grace alone. What a difference it makes that it is grace alone. Luther tried what the church was selling. Grace plus a fair go. He tried his works. He became a monk. He did all the sacraments that he could. He fasted almost himself to death. He confessed his sins multiple hours each day. He did all the penance he was given. And yet he knew no assurance. He knew that it had not worked. He knew that grace plus a fair go could not be right. For you can never be sure that way. Peter Fion was a member of our congregation until a couple of years ago. He was from a Catholic family and his father was a very devout Catholic. He was a good man, everyone said so. He was a good Catholic Indeed, the Pope 
gave him a knighthood because he was that good as a Catholic. When he died, Peter was invited to do a Bible reading and so Peter, who had come to know grace alone, chose this Bible passage. He read it out at the service so that people would know that it is not grace plus a fair go, that God does not help those who, who, can, who help themselves, so that people would know the gospel. He read out this passage. And then the bishop got up to speak, a personal friend of Peter's father. This bishop spoke warmly of Peter's father and what a good man that he was. And then he told us that in the last week of Peter's father's life, he was troubled. Troubled because he was not sure. Not sure that he had done enough. Grace plus a fair go, he needed to be sure that he'd done enough to earn it. And so he said that to his friend, the bishop, wanting reassurance. I'm just not sure that I've done enough. And so what did the bishop say? Did he reassure him that it was by grace alone? Did he read to him some of Ephesians 2, that it was all about what God had done, not what he needed to do, that there was no fair go that needed to be fulfilled, that he could be sure? No. Everyone in the congregation sighed as he told the story because they were all convinced of what a good man Peter's father was. And the bishop told us that he reassured Peter's father that he had done enough. Because the bishop believed what the Catholic Church teaches. It's grace plus a fair go. Do your works and if you do enough, you will be okay. Grace plus works, which is no longer grace. Well, do you know grace alone for yourself? I've never been a Catholic, but I lived for 15 years of my life like a Catholic. For I believed in grace plus a fair go. If you'd asked me, is God generous? Is he gracious? I would have said, yes, of course he is. If you'd asked me, this, does God help those who help themselves? Do you believe in a fair go? Do you have to do your part? I would have said, yes. And so I was doing my best and hoping it would be okay. If you'd asked me, will God let you into heaven? I would have said, I hope so. If you'd asked me, what do you think you would say if God said, why should I let you in? I would have said, because I do all these things. I was not brought up as a Catholic, but I thought just the same. Because that's the way everyone thinks, apart from the gospel. Grace plus a fair go for those who try hard. And thank God my youth leader shared with me that it was not about what I needed to do, but what Jesus had done. And that I could be sure God would welcome me in. And that the answer was not because I, 
whatever that might be, but because Jesus had died and risen again for me. Grace alone. Do you know that? Do you know that in your head? Do you know that in your heart? And are you filled with joy at that confidence? Well, how does that confidence change the world? Well, in the 16th century, believe it or not, church life was actually important to the world. It dominated the world of Europe. And so when people realised that it was not grace plus a fair go, but grace alone, it changed church dramatically. You think about it for a moment. If religion is all about earning your way with God, getting more packets of grace from God, then the rituals you do are simply to earn God's favour. They are to do things to get more graces. You touch the relics, you go on a pilgrimage, you say the penance, you go to Mass and you do enough of them to get God's favour. You are constantly doing more to impress Him. People sometimes do it today by their extraordinary singing experience at church. We, they offer something up to God. But if you believe in grace alone, then who is church for? Is it for God that you're doing something? No. God is the gracious one. He has done it all for us. And he's even given us church for our benefit. We don't do it to come into his presence, to offer up something to him. We come together to remind us of his grace, to be gracious to one another. For church is for one another and not for God. And there are no rituals to go through to get grace. It doesn't just change church, of course. It changes all your relationships. We live our relationships by a fair go, don't we? Are you kind to me? I'll be kind to you. Do you look after me? I'll look after you. Do you do your share of the housework? I'll do my share of the housework. If you do something against me and say sorry, I'll forgive you and be nice to you. But if you attack me, then fair go, I'll fight back. That's the way of the world. That's the way of our community, the way of our families. It can even be the way of our church. What does grace alone do? You've got grace from God, undeserved favour. Nothing that you have done to deserve it. He simply gave it. And God wants you to bend it outwards. That's Christian behaviour, isn't it? That's why I want you to come to this workshop called PeaceWise, to learn about being gracious to other people. And especially we need to be like that with those with whom we disagree. The last month or so has sort of been hot topic month at church, hasn't it? We talked about same-sex marriage and now we're talking about the Reformation and what's wrong with the teaching of the Catholic Church. And so I want to warn you, warn you of what 
could be a disaster for us. What is that disaster? We could get all this right in our heads. We could even, in a sense, be convinced of it for ourselves and get it right in our hearts. And then look down on those who disagree. We could look down on those who disagree with us about same-sex marriage. We could look down on those who just don't seem to be able to get it, that it's faith alone and grace alone. How could you possibly get Ephesians 2 wrong in that way, we might think? And that'd be a disaster, don't you think? For we'd be believing in grace alone, where we get what we don't deserve, and then look on others and boast. How stupid would that be? How evil would that be? We need to be gracious in our hearts and minds towards others. We need to be gracious in our words towards others. And if ever there was a time when we might not do that, I think it's now. So keep remembering that it's by grace alone so that you're gracious to one another and gracious to others, especially to those who we disagree with. Here is the idea that changed the world. It's not grace. That's ordinary and normal, and everyone believes in it. It's grace alone. Has it changed your world? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. We praise you that you do not treat us as our sins deserve. We praise you that though we were dead in our sins, unable to help ourselves, wretched before you, you made us alive, raised us up, and seated us with you in the heavenly realms. You did it all. Father, for those of us for whom we're still figuring this out, who are still mixed up about perhaps about grace and about works and a fair go, please give us clarity and please don't let us rest until we've come to know this grace alone. And Father, please save us from the disaster, the disaster of knowing grace alone but not living it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.